Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. So welcome back. Uh, today we have couple of special guests. We have Dr. Nathan Creel and we have Kyle Gibson. So you guys go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from and what you do. So my name is Nathan Creel. I'm one of the trauma surgeons here at Northeast Georgia Medical Center. I do trauma and acute care surgery here. Ultimately, I uh, became interested in trauma during residency. It's one of those things that I kind of fell into and I kind of fell into a lot of different things um, just based on what felt right to me at the time. Uh, I was at a six-year program where it was either a year of research that was spread throughout the six years or do a fellowship, and I decided um, I'm more of a doer rather than a researcher, so I, I thought it would be easier to go ahead and uh, do a critical care year. For me, it, it really was. Uh, it turned out to be a good uh, good option for me, and I had a lot of fun, and you, know, you come out with two board certifications rather than a bunch of papers, so... Uh, I was looking for a trauma place to work afterwards um, that was relatively uh, new as far as something that uh, wouldn't be super academic. Again, I didn't want to write a whole bunch of papers. I didn't want to write book chapters. I wanted to get out and operate. So they had this level two center that had just started here, and it seemed like a good fit for me. Um, we really liked the area. My wife uh, really liked the area. She felt like it was a place that we could raise a family. So. We come here, and uh, you know, as as things happen to me, it just seems like I kind of fall into a place where where uh, where I can fit in and do some good. So, I happen to go to the RTAC uh, meetings, and uh, you know, the the medical director at the time was having difficulty getting to every meeting, and so I said, "Well, like, let me take over that." So I went to the RTAC meetings frequently for our team, um, and worked closely there. I worked with Kyle a lot, and he you know, had some ideas about several different projects that he wanted to get started. Um, and so I, I just told him that I would support him. And, and uh, this region here in Georgia kind of led um, the Stop the Bleed project. And I'd say most of that uh, was from Kyle's interest. In, and, um, you know, he brought that to me about a year before we even started that. I also kind of fell into the uh, medical directorship for AirLife as well. So I'm medical director for AirLife 2 and 14. Um, so that's uh, Cornelia, Georgia, and uh, Blairsville, Georgia. So, um, And part of that is because of this hospital growing. And uh, really, that helicopter is now bringing patients to us rather than being in the community bringing patients to Atlanta. Now... That helicopter is in the community bringing patients to northeast Georgia. That's, that's kind of how the hospital has grown at the moment and, and kind of where I fit into it. Yeah, so uh, my name is Kyle Gibson. I'm one of the nurse practitioners who uh, works uh, here at Northeast Georgia Medical Center in Gainesville in the trauma service. Uh, so, again, we cover trauma, acute care surgery, and then surgical critical care. Uh, so we kind of cover all bases for our um, patient population. But my background, um, I started off in the fire service in 2004 as a junior firefighter. Uh, this was at a volunteer fire department. And then when I hit 18 years old, I was able to go through uh, Firefighter 1. And then I got my minimal standards. Uh, and I got a my nursing degree. And then went part-time with the Scammon County Fire Rescue down in uh, Pensacola, Florida. And then I moved up here uh, back in 2012 to kind of help. Uh, with the trauma system build out 
and I've been here ever since. I remember whenever I was going through paramedic school, you were one of our preceptors. Is that uh, is that experience that 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 you valued? Did, what did you feel like you were able to give back as a preceptor to paramedicine students in the ED before you got into trauma? Yeah, so I think like every young boy, uh, they look at a fire truck and they want to be a firefighter, right? So that was kind of my career path, and that's what I thought I would do. You know, 30 years um, um, in the back seat or front seat or, you know, as a chief or whatever. And um, obviously uh, got in the fire service and got exposed to flight nursing mm-hmm. and kind of was like, huh, that may be something what I want to do. And then so that kind of drove my desire to go to nursing school. Um, and then got a job in uh, Pensacola and then got exposed to, um, you know, advanced practice providers and I was like, hey, I want to do this. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed the autonomy or watching the autonomy of mm-hmm. the APPs. Um, it wasn't, you know, eight years of medical school and a residency or a fellowship. And I can still provide, you know, pretty much the same care, critical care, um, what I, you know, an attending would be doing. Uh, so kind of going back is how can I get back, right? Mm-hmm. So I've always had this love for the pre-hospital theater and as I was introduced to Sam Stone mm. and the rest of the guys at Learn Tech, and this felt like a perfect opportunity um, to give back to the pre-hospital uh, community. Because my focus was you got to learn the why before you do the do. Absolutely. And uh, I think this is kind of the whole point of this podcast is kind of learning the why Absolutely. behind things. Uh, every, any, you know, anybody can start an IV uh, but why, you know, I always kind of complain about, you know, some nurses are pushers and perchers, mm. right? So they sit, they push drugs and then they perch and chart. But really my expectation for the career field is how can we build on that and really knowing the why and the business. And I think that's how things survive personally. Yeah. Well, that's good. And, and that kind of leads into what we want to accomplish in this episode, at least um, when we talk about why the fluid or what the fluid <laughs> so we have this uh, this problem in pre-hospital education uh, that the initial education is not f- quick to change uh, based on data um, or based on studies, or maybe there aren't many studies out there. So we end up just regurgitating the same thing over and over. And one of those big things that we've done over the years is the idea for hypotension or any kind of shock the first line treatment for pre-hospital is fluids. And uh, so going back uh, even decades and up to current uh, education and current standards, or if it's not standards, it's just a culture, that fluids are the answer. So can you take us through, Dr. Creel, some of uh, just the pathophysiology of hemorrhagic shock and actually what's going on uh, with it and how uh, treatment with or without fluids can be uh, good or bad? Sure, yeah. And it's a kind of a complicated topic, obviously. It can take a while to explain all the details, but basically... Um, these are things that were forgotten over the years. These were details that were known back as early as World War One, World War Two, um, and during those time periods, there were, you know, wartime injuries, and the providers at the time understood that if you gave fluids, then you had a worse outcome. And over time, that has just basically uh, been forgotten by different people, especially the civilian world. 
And um, as time goes on, you know, things change. Uh, obviously, at the time during World War One, World War Two, they were able to give blood products. In World War One, they were doing direct transfusions from one person to another. Um, and so there's a, some obvious downsides to that. Um, but they're also using whole blood, which is a good resuscitation fluid. World War II, they stored whole blood, and that was the first kind of storage of whole blood um, uh, in existence. And they, they had thousands and thousands of units that they um, took over on a plane um, to the war field, uh, and that's what they used as transfusion fluid. Um, there were also things out there like lyophilized uh, plasma, things that are coming back into vogue, and, and they should be. Um, and these were things that were used in, you know, early 1900s. And, uh, you know, this freeze-dried plasma is now coming back around. And, it, you know, I think really it's because um, these were things that were known at the time from experience, but nobody really proved them. Uh, nobody did any head-to-head -head comparisons. And so over time, um, there were some benefits to making blood into components. And uh, as that happened, blood... Be, became separated, and so instead of whole blood, people were able to use uh, plasma, pack cells, and uh, platelets separately. And it was really an advantage for several different purposes, but also just for storage purpose, it made a lot of sense. And so, um, but there were never any studies showing that one was superior to another at the time. That wasn't um, that wasn't even thought about. People didn't do studies to determine which way they should do it. They just did what made sense at the time and used common sense, which doesn't always play out. But in this particular instance, there is some common sense to it. It just doesn't apply to the trauma patient. So things that were well known during those those time periods got forgotten. And uh, once it was forgotten, then things kind of came back around. But ultimately, um, fluid resuscitation with crystalloid was um, the mainstay of treatment for all types of shock initially. Uh, for a long, long time, and uh, what happened is another war broke out, and people started to remember the old ways, isn't that right? So you start finding that um, you know just general fluid and crystalloid is not going to be the answer, and those patients are going to do worse. And so that has this snowball effect uh, that is basically trickling down from the military to the civilian population. And then from there, it spreads out through the trauma world. So that's a fairly typical um, pattern right now um, in the evidence-based medicine and in the fluid resuscitation management right now for the, tr for the patient in hemorrhagic shock. And that's because they're going to see so much more of it than anybody else. Um, so if you start with just crystalloid itself um, and transfusing that, um, does anybody know what the pH of saline is? 5.4. <laughs> That's a guess, isn't it? So it's, no, it's uh, correct. Four, it's correct. Four, right. four, four point five yeah. to uh, about five five. Yeah. Right? So I looked it up with the uh, International Journal of Medical Sciences. They had oh, an nice. article whatever, where they uh, they cited that it Comes ranges. On the of saline, yeah, yeah, it ranges from four point four up to five point five. Yeah. So we all win. We all, we all get a trophy. Yeah. <laughs> nice gold star. Gold yeah, star. Yeah. And we'll we'll put that on the website. So we'll basically, you're transfusing acid. Yeah. You're transfusing acid and. I think it's well established that there's a triad of uh, mortality that happens, and it's this 
it it's been called many many things. There's mm. the bloody vicious cycle. There's the triad of death. There's um, all these different names for it. But it's basically the patient becomes cold. They become more coagulopathic, um, and they become acidotic. And it's for a variety of things. But if you think about it, saline transfusion is going to make all of those things worse. Every single bit of it. So the first first step is you transfuse cold saline in the patient they get colder and then you dilute all their clotting factors um, so you're going to make them more coagulopathic and then it's also uh, a low ph so you're going to make their acidosis worse mm. um, so even if you were to change that and say let's change it to lr right and so a lot of places are doing lr in shock right um, it, it's probably makes sense in in maybe septic shock or something like that but um, even then, you're diluting the coagulation factors for that patient that's actively bleeding. The other concept that um, has has um, everybody's been aware of for a pretty good while is a permissive hypotension. And so, um, as the patient is bleeding, the concept being that if you drive the pressure up, then any clot that may have formed, if it's dri- driven up too high, um, is going to be um, extruded or um, are blown off from that, that particular injury. And so as the blood pressure increases, that clot is moved from where it should be um, to where it's no longer functional. And so uh, there's a concept called popping the clot, and basically mm. that um, permissive hypotension would be allowing the blood pressure to be low until you get to a place where it can be fixed. And then at that point, you increase the blood pressure, fix the bleeding, um, and then stabilize the patient. So all those things um, add up to um, transfusing some type of crystalloid um, being a major problem. So sometime during the 80s and 90s, uh, people decided, well, let's try to give either crystalloid or colloid to a patient for resuscitation. And so the colloid was given to the patients versus crystalloid, and they those patients did obviously worse. So it was... It was quite clear that colloid was not the answer. It made a lot of sense from a fluid perspective uh, as far as common sense because you're probably giving less fluid overall, and it's more likely to stay intravascular, but it didn't really pan out clinically. And so that's really when evidence-based started to look into this process and what do we give. So during that time, uh, everybody got crystalloid, and that was, that was the resuscitation fluid for a long time. They got liters and liters and liters of crystalloid to the point where they turn into these uh, very dimitous kind of marshmallow people. Easy. Yeah. Easy. <laughs> yeah, well, in fact, I, I think, you know, Kyle may remember this uh, from the ER. We used to have this, uh, we called it trauma tubing, which was essentially you could puncture two bags, have it run in, into a, a central place, and it wasn't even a drip. It was just a, a, a constant a flow. Constant, um, pressure flow and that wasn't uh, that really wasn't all that long ago so let me ask you this so would it be better for a patient not to get any fluids rather than than uh, a crystalloid solution is it actually the crystalloid solution that's causing the problem or where, it, where it we... can potentially be a problem so um during our trauma symposium uh dr cormick and um he's one of our newest trauma surgeons he presented um, some evidence uh, looking at transfusing crystalloid and whether or not that causes a problem. And they looked at anything uh, over 500 milliliters as being 
uh, significant transfusion of crystalloidin. Those patients did do worse and had higher mortality rates. So uh, it is significant to the point where even over 500 milliliters of crystalloid can have a significant effect. So the current uh, ATLS guideline is now to minimize crystalloid to one liter total. And then after that liter, uh, blood products of some sort. Kyle, whenever you, whenever both of you came and spoke with our paramedicine class, uh, you explained the importance that, or, or the effect that acidosis has on the ability for hemoglobin to be able to carry O2, to offload O2 versus, you know, holding on to CO2. Um, do you mind going into that for our listeners so that they also see, you know, whenever we talk about how acidic fluids are? How, how that does affect the actually the actual oxygen carrying capacity. So yeah, it does affect the affinity of hemoglobin to bind oxygen, and there are several things that affect that. That's temperature, pH, um, as well as the 2,3-DPG and whether or not that's present or not. Uh, but ultimately, it, in, it makes it worse or difficult for mm-hmm. oxygen to bind. So um, the hemoglobin that may be around if you're acidotic is not going to bind as well. Now, um, it's helpful in normal physiology because it goes to the area um, the, of uh, of need, in other words, and that and then it offloads. So it goes from an area of normal pH to an area that's acidotic from um, use or whatever, if that's mm. the muscle contracting, um, and then it dumps off the oxygen, and then it goes back to the lungs um, in the deoxygenated state. So, but if the entire body um, is acidotic, then it won't bind to the the hemoglobin as well in the lungs. And so it never gets the oxygen that it needs. Now, um, most of the time I, I talk about hemoglobin um, as being the oxygen carrying capacity. And uh, one thing that I would like to make clear, especially talking about transfusion of fluids, is that when you choose which blood product that you transfuse, um, it really depends on what you're, what you're trying to do. So if you look at the patient that's acutely bleeding, and you haven't given a lot of crystalloid, your hemoglobin is going to be fairly well concentrated. Um, and based on the hemoglobin alone, you know, normal hemoglobin being somewhere 13 to 15, it should have adequate oxygen carrying capacity based on hemoglobin alone down to 7 or even lower. Um, so in those instances, when you're picking a fluid to give first and you don't have a whole blood, you've just got components, you don't necessarily have to give pack cells first because in that particular instance, um, the hemoglobin is still concentrated. And so uh, the main thing is to try to reverse that lethal cycle of mm-hmm. acidosis. And as you maintain your pH and keep the patient warm, then you'll hold on to your oxygen. You, you've got great oxygen carrying capacity, mm-hmm. and then it will dump off in the tissue where the tissue has been hypoxic. And that's kind of what Jason and I have talked about with with a couple of guests and with each other now. It's one of the big, uh, one of the big parts of of what we're trying to push is a paradigm shift in this from a pressure to a perfusion perspective. Like you need to stop looking at it from all right, we're worried about pressures as much as we're actually worrying about perfusion, getting getting oxygen to the cells. Right. And so um, usually when I'm talking to people about perfusion, the, the probably the most important thing to perfuse is the brain, right? So right. Um, it's an easy one to, um, to check to see if somebody is having perfusion issues. Can they think clearly? Can they have a car- uh, carry on a conversation with you? If they can, 
they're probably adequately perfused. Uh, I've also had a patient relatively recently that had terrible CHF. His systolic was 50 at one point, MAP of 30, but he would carry on a conversation with you. And ultimately, we ended up stopping a lot of his pressors that we kept on for no apparent reason. It wasn't doing anything to his pressure. Mm. Um, and he did fine. And uh, basically, we just had to ignore it because there was no way to get it elevated. We had him on four different pressors. We had him on dibutamine and milrinone and couldn't get a pressure, just could not get one. So uh, in that instance, we just uh, treated him as symptomatic. And in that instance, he had perfusion. He had adequate perfusion to his brain to mentate and say, I want to come off this ventilator. And we extubated him. Uh, and wow. he did okay. So going back to the concept of treating the patient. Well, let me let me take you back and, and just kind of put you on the spot here. And this, this may not be an easily answered, or maybe it's um, unfortunately an easily answered question. You know, there's so many people listening to this that uh, are, well, they don't have access to, to blood products. It's not... There's just they're they're not available. The logistics of doing it is just not feasible for ninety percent or more. And I'm making that statistic up, but um, for the majority of pre-hospital blood products, just are not an option for trauma. What what should be the focus? Um, and should it be the five hundred milliliters, um, or should we be treating uh, up to a certain pressure? and backing off then what what should be our benchmark for for or for our our goal for treatment i think that's a moving target and there's not a lot of evidence out there as far as what the exact pressure you should titrate to and i think mental status is probably the main one so if mental status is declining you're going to have to do something to elevate the blood pressure i think that's one of the reasons we're doing this study that we're going to talk about here later but um basically if you have a long transport time in a patient that's injured significantly, you're probably going to have a low blood pressure at some point. They're going to probably start to lose consciousness at some point. So you may have to give crystal. That may be the only thing that you have. Um, and it may temporarily improve their uh, mental status to some extent. Now, what would that goal be as far as a systolic or um, something like that? And I usually just tell people systolic like a 90 or something. Um, just as a, as a point of reference, but it's not, not evidence-based at the moment. Um, it's just one particular, um, number that's still, some people would consider hypotensive, but not overly hypertensive. But usually what happens is they get, you know, a full liter run in as fast as possible. And then they go to 150. Um, and then as soon as that liter of normal saline, either third spaces or they do pop a clot, then it goes systolic down to 40 yeah <laughs> over 30 so would it be better um to have a systolic of either 60 or 70 for two hours or would it be better to increase your blood pressure for five minutes to 160 and then it dropped down to 40 over 30 um, and i think obviously in this instance you know it's going to be a permissive hypotension and you do what you can to avoid hypertension in this instance, and not just hypertension, but even normal tension, you want to avoid it if at all possible. And that's specific to the patient that has major bleeding. Okay. This is not, you know, the, the patient in septic shock by any means. This is the patient that has um, suspected significant bleeding. 
And Kyle, that to, to kind of go off at this point, that is one tool that you gave our medic students that I really appreciate. Do you mind discussing shock index and how important that is and how you use it? Yeah, so shock index is kind of a relatively new vital sign being used uh, for resuscitation. Uh, normal shock index is 0.5 to 0.7. Anything above 0.8, usually we say resuscitate. It's just kind of like the GCS slogan of less than 8, intubate. And the question is, you know, again, what do you resuscitate with? And that's kind of the big question. And I think, again, uh, we try to blanket statement stuff like keeping maps above 65 or blood pressures between 90. And the thing is, is that everybody's individualized. There's not a linear approach to patient care. And so I think that's why uh, it's called the art of medicine because it's truly an art. Uh, so shock index, as far as calculating, it's basically heart rate uh, divided uh, by uh, the systolic blood pressure. And, uh, again, relatively new, and it's not being really reported out, mm. even in you know our region, what I feel is pretty progressive. And I think that's kind of the next movement as we get into this pre-hospital blood component therapy um, project that we're about to start in January 2020 and kind of changing that mindset of calculating shock index and then reporting shock index. And I think as far as a cardiac-wise, uh, you know, of course, Jason's sent across for me, you know, will probably be beneficial too as well. Yeah. And I'm so glad you mentioned that, that linear approach and that just taking that individual patient, because so much of, of what we do, not just in pre-hospital medicine, but just in medicine in general is such, so protocol based or so prescriptive that we think we can go down an algorithm. And if they meet this criteria, then there's a very simple fix for that. And it's very clear on what to do. So um, I appreciate you, you know, you, you pointing that out. I, I think as, uh, especially as field providers, they're not going to, you know, they don't, field providers don't specialize in trauma. They don't specialize in cardiology, uh, you know, pre-hospital, they have to essentially specialize in everything. So to have these, these tools to be able to think critically rather than say, oh, you know, um, give fluids to a, a blood pressure of 90 and then, uh, you know, titrate it to maintain it at 90. That, that's just, uh. That's just not an appropriate thing that we have to look at that patient. And I, and I love, uh, Dr. Creel, what you said about the uh, mental status. I don't think we pay enough attention to that. And I don't think we appreciate that uh, anxiety enough that a patient gets and what uh, what that actually means uh, when a patient is anxious. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we see this day in, day out in the hospital with hemoglobins. And should we transfuse or should we not? And I think you would see on our service that we kind of let people – stay around a hemoglobin around six before, you know, we transfuse. And, you know, two decades ago, that number was 10 and then it was eight. And then if it's, hey, if it's a cardiac patient, you know, give blood. And I feel like we kind of do a good job uh, kind of being pretty conservative about transfusing blood because, again, you have to think it's not so much a transfusion. It's actually a transplant. You're mm. transplanting somebody else's blood into somebody else. And there's a high, you know, potential of a reaction. And you just have to be smart about it. And I think, again, it goes back, uh, treat the patient, not the number. Or, you know, as far as a pre-hospital statement, treat the patient, not the monitor. Yeah, I think I think there's so much uh, good information in all those things said because um, protocols are great until you, somebody doesn't fit in the protocol. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really tough sometimes um, to 
get every single scenario in a single protocol. It's just impossible. Um, but the other thing is, you know, when you're treating all these different patients, you know, which ones are different than the others? And it, it's really tough sometimes. Um, and, you know, with trauma, it, it almost seems like we're bipolar in the fact that we transfuse, 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 and then we hold, 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 and don't transfuse the hemoglobins of six, right? Yeah. And that that's based on evidence at this point. So the good, you know, we talked about evidence and kind of the evolution of of uh, transfusions over time and tr- blood products and uh, and saline and and so basically evidence at the moment is saying that transfusing those patients um, just for a number. Um, is detrimental, and those patients are doing worse. Um, but for the trauma patient that is acutely bleeding, um, if you're bleeding blood and you replace it with anything besides blood, you're probably going to make things worse. Mic drop. That's put it. that. Yeah. Put that quote on a bumper sticker. Yeah, right there. That's, <laughs> it. that's it. Satan salt solution. That's what I call normal saline. Uh, nice. <laughs> Wait a minute. We got. I mean, that's one stop, more. Stop. 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 Back up. We got to get that in there somehow. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not editing this out. I'm leaving it in. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think we have to talk about. You know, again, going back fluids and what fluids to choose. I think on the trauma service, we use, utilize a lot of LR uh, just because it's a little bit more balanced, and that's kind of what we have in our formulary here at the hospital. There's other types of uh, balance. Um, fluid like plasma light A and some other things. Normasol. Yeah. Normasol. Uh, what anesthesia uses a lot. And I think on the ECMO component uh, circuits, we're using Normasol when we do our ECMO cases. But, you know, again, I think the thing is if you look at the evidence, and again, I'm not here to tell you which research study to look at because I feel like mm. adult learners, we should be given <laughs> the references and then. The learners look at the stuff and kind of get their own opinions because you're going to find an opinion on both sides of the aisle. And uh, but again, uh, we kind of joke around with crystalloid, and we know it what it has um, as far as the patients on our service with ARDS and acute mm-hmm. kidney injury, and the increases that it does, especially in the trauma trauma world. And I think everybody needs to realize too, trauma is a surgical disease, and how we approach critical care. Uh, or surgical critical care is a little bit different than medical critical care. And um, I think that's kind of another kind of, I guess, caveat on our service and how we treat our patients. You know, it's really frustrating when you have a patient that uh, comes into the emergency room dead, you get them back, and then you take them to the operating room, and you start to work on them, and you see something that you could potentially fix until they got too much saline. Mm. And then it's not fixable. Um, and that's maybe one reason that I call it Satan's salt solution of death, because <laughs> once once they're bleeding Kool-Aid, I can't fix it. Yeah. And, and, and you just can't repair it. You can't. It's just coming out of everything. Um, and so um, basically it, it requires, first of all, communication with anesthesia um, and then protocols in the hospital and, and, you know, we have some anesthesia, um, that are really, really good about listening to us and, and, um, and being on the same page. Um, and some of them have some stuff to learn. So, um, I think this is really something for everyone, um, is that once you diluted all those clotting factors, the, 
that's just impossible. It bleeds around the stitch that you put in there. Oh my gosh. So, you know, I can put a stitch into somebody that's got normal clotting factors and they stop bleeding. Um, but then if they get diluted to that point, every time, every stitch hole that I put in continues to bleed and it just bleeds, 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 bleeds. And the more I try to fix, the worse it gets. Yeah. And I think for the listeners too, about pre-hospital care, it's, it doesn't stop when the patient gets dropped off. Your actions on scene and your actions transporting the patient has huge downstream effects. Just like what Dr. Creel said about, you know, two liters pre-hospital, well, they're probably going to get potentially a liter or two in the ER, and then they're going to go to surgery, and they're going to get a liter or two just because that's what's getting mixed in with antibiotics and everything else. And we're already we're already done. The patient's done. Yeah. There's we, no TXA. There's no case centra. There's not enough plasma to no reverse what's already done. There's no magic bullet for yeah. that for sure. What the fluids? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely. Also, uh, the worst is transfers in because you know they may be at some other hospital and uh, they find on a CT scan that a patient has X. It may be a bleeding spleen or a splenic aneurysm that's ruptured or something like that, and they start fluids. And then they get fluids in route, and then they get fluids in the emergency room, and then anesthesia gives fluids, and then it's impossible to fix because there's such a time lapse between all those things. So, you know, you know, a person gets in a car wreck, they're probably more likely to live than if they have a bleeding aneurysm and show up to a smaller hospital. Uh, and I'm not saying don't show up to a smaller hospital because you might not be able to live if you wait and go to a big hospital and yeah. take that transport time. But on the other hand, we need to educate those smaller hospitals on fluid resuscitation. And instead of giving crystalloid, give some type of blood product. Yeah. And I think, you know, for the people who might be working uh, at facilities or ICUs or, you know, whatever, it's kind of even the maintenance fluids, you know, there's no rhyme or reason on maintenance fluids, Uh, you know, for our standpoint, you know, we get patients who come in as trauma patients, get a contrast load, and we're giving them some maintenance fluids. But, you know, there has to be a point when we start talking about de-escalation of fluids. Uh, I think, you know, there's a true sweet spot for optimizing and resuscitation. But we have to kind of think in the back of our head, how do we de-escalate, stop these fluids? It's kind of like, you know, I work a 12-hour shift and I might have two <laughs> Diet Mountain Dews, and that's all I'm drinking, and I don't pee for 12 hours, you know? Yeah. Same thing with a patient who's MPO. I mean, they don't need, you know, normal saline or LR going at 150, hour, 150 mils an hour be, just because they're MPO. And that's kind of asinine. And then you got to think about the antibiotics, what they're getting, and all that extra fluid. And kind of like what Krill was talking about, you know, we're we're still going back 10 years ago when they looked like the Michelin Man. And um, I think we just need to kind of really pay attention to what we're putting in the patients uh, and be smart about it. Yeah, um, especially with saline uh, and just as a resuscitation fluid and, and, and overall resuscitation, even with blood products, there's there comes to a point where you need to um, de-resuscitate. And de-resuscitation has been uh, kind of a hot topic in critical care recently and uh, trying to get rid of that fluid and even pay, putting patients on pressors to try to get rid of some of this fluid because um, it may keep them on the ventilator longer. Um, they may have multiple other complications from that. Um, and so trying to get them back to a normal fluid state. And it, sometimes it's tricky stuff. Awesome. Very good. Well, thank you, gentlemen. That was, that was very good. I think that'll be a good place to... Uh 
to wrap up the the what the fluid blood hemorrhagic shock. <laughs> so thank you both. I think I'm going to tweet that out right now. You're going to tweet it? All right. Send nice. it. Be able to timestamp it. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.